Did I miss any blanks, Lee? No. It's a Christmas miracle. Um, okay, excellent. So, um, so I've got a I got a rabbit trail ready. We can go down if you want. We can go take a look at Isaiah seven. But uh, before we do that, uh, any questions you guys might have or thoughts from this morning's message? I'll let you guys take a swing at it first. Don, Scott, Scott, Don, right up front here. Don. As I was looking through the first chapters of Matthew and, and Luke, uh, I was noticing how Matthew, both Matthew and Luke have genealogies, lots of lists yeah. of names. Yeah, yeah. Um, They're not the same, are they? No. <laughs> um, two different genealogies. Correct. But um, after that, when, the ba- when Jesus is born, it's, he's just referred to as the child. There's no, there's over and over and over again. It talks about the child, the child. This, right. um, just wondered if if you had any thoughts on the significance or the. Uh, that. Yes, um, Jesus really. How many how many events does Jesus act in, in Scripture prior to his baptism? One. No, that's John the Baptist. One. Luke 2, where Jesus is left in the temple. Now, Jesus is acted upon in Luke. He's circumcised. He's dedicated. He, he, he's, things are done to him, and he's the child. Jesus only acts once in the Gospels that we're told of. It's when he's left in, in Jerusalem. He's 12 years old, which is interesting, because um, even last week, as he looked at the blind man's parents saying he's of age, we know there's a Jewish mindset of what the age of when you become a man is. We don't get this in the Bible, but extra biblically, it's 13. It's when you're bar mitzvahed. Um, so in, in Luke 2, I think part of the significance of Luke 2's account is even before Jesus officially became a man, while he was still a child, he knew who his father was. Because the whole, the whole pivot of that narrative is Mary saying, your father and I have been looking for you. And Jesus says, I actually have been about my father's business. There's a, and you're like, oh, he knows. He knows. Um, so Jesus' activity and Jesus' actions prior to his baptism have virtually no interest for the gospel writers, virtually. Um, it, it's not, J- Jesus, the focus of Jesus' life is as it's fulfilling his mission. And he is, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What does Christ mean? Which means, so until Jesus gets anointed at the baptism at the river and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, the gospels aren't terribly interested in what he does. It's Jesus functioning as the anointed, which then starts at the Jordan with John, which is why they don't have any mention of it. It's not to say, I mean, now John can say at the end of John's gospel, now if all the things Jesus said and did were written, the, the earth wouldn't be large enough to contain them. It's not to say there wouldn't be edifying material. It's not to say that it wouldn't be uh, a blessing to have. In God's purposes, the gospel writers are not interested in that. Um, so there is a absolute focus on Jesus' function and ministry as the Messiah, and that starts at the Jordan, where he is anointed. Um, so other than Luke 2, we get nothing. I mean, it's, 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 if you look at the, the birth narratives, Matthew just has this, and then he's born. You come out of our passage this morning, Jesus is born. The Magi show up. Luke's got the longest one, where we learn about the census. But even that, 
our focus is on the manger and on the animals and the ducks and the geese and the straw and the hay. And, and Luke's emphasis is on Caesar thought he was flexing his muscles to show how powerful he was, and he was doing nothing but fulfilling God's purposes. He actually fulfilled God's plan in getting the, the Joseph and Mary, the holy couple, to Bethlehem. Um, so the, the short answer is the Gospels are about the crucifixion. The Gospels are about the, the death. We're getting, we're sprinting to the cross. And so there's, there's very little interest in the Gospels apart from that. I, I don't know if you're going somewhere different, but they, they really seem to have a pretty laser focus on what Jesus did as the Messiah. Okay, no, no, go, go, go. If I'm missing what you're saying, but clarify. Well, uh, yeah, I, I realized that, that there wasn't, there's nothing really recorded other than that one event, yeah. uh, but but just again, the, preceding that, there's all a focus on names. Yes. After that, w- once he's born, he's just uh, until uh, he is anointed, mm. he's the child. Is uh, rather than Jesus. Uh, this was this was. Uh, 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 so. the, the, the short answer, I think, would be because in all those narratives, Jesus is passive. He's being acted upon he's being taken places he isn't given a name because he's not doing anything just just from a hebrew writing style you name actors and in those texts it's significant where he goes but he is not a significant actor in those passages i I wouldn't take any disrespect from it towards no no like why is matthew just calling him the child that's pretty natural i i think because jesus isn't doing things he's having things done to him in those narratives but yeah um, well, and the other thing that, that Luke really highlights is Jesus learns. I mean, you, you really, when you're dealing with the incarnation, you've got two options. You can go with the sort of medieval Catholic view. If you've seen, like, there's, there's literally paintings of Jesus with the umbilical cord uncut teaching. Like, you know, there's a halo on his head, and he's got his fingers up, and, like, he's holding court. And so you either have to have Jesus coming into the world fully omniscient, functionally omniscient. He is a newborn child who speaks and talks and reasons and teaches and is the full mental capacities of a person. Or, and I think Luke's presentation, the child grew in wisdom and stature, Jesus learned, which means he, he's not walking and talking out of the womb. He's, he's the perfect baby, but he's learning as babies learn, which I think is part of the significance of, of Luke 2's account in the temple. That means Jesus learned he was the Son of God. He's reading his Bible, and he's reading. He knows he knows the angel's annunciation. He knows he's the Messiah, and he's reading his Old Testament. And he he, he has to learn. He has to. That's my. That's just jaw dropping. There was a day Jesus learned he was the Son of God. I think that's the implication. Either he shows up knowing everything out of the womb, and he's not learning to walk, and he's not learning to talk. He's doing it all perfectly. You know, from from day one. Or the child grew in wisdom and stature. My, my one-year-old doesn't know who she is and favor with God and man. Yes, 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 yes. So I think part of Luke's account is as Luke presents Jesus learning, however he learned, by the time he was 12, he knew who he was. Maybe he knew sooner, but he definitely knew by the time he was 12. Before he became a man, Jesus knew who his father was. I, I think that's part of the significance of Luke's account. The other part of the significance is Jesus spends three days studying the scripture, which again, 
as Jesus shows up in Luke's gospel as the master of the scripture, refuting the Sadducees, silencing his foes, we're not to conclude, well, of course he's God. We're supposed to conclude, of course he studied his tail off. Because that's how Luke presents it. That's where Luke would have us be like, oh, okay. So when he shows up just, just absolutely as a master of God's word, Luke's reason for that that we've seen is this is a boy who spent three days and nights in the temple being taught and asking questions of the teachers in the temple. Um, this is a boy who prioritized studying the word of God. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm not sure if I'm still getting to where you're going, but yeah. We, I don't want to, I don't want to, it's, it's not that I want, there's, there's everything right. I don't want to say there's nothing wrong. It is good and right to cherish the Christmas stories and the narratives, but, but recognize the, how little the gospels make of those details, which is simply to say, make the big things, the big things. So it's not stop, stop loving the picture of the the holy couple in the manger and the no, that, great but recognize where the where the where the camera f- focuses and and remains on um that it that's that's there's nothing intimidating and scary about a baby in a manger it's it's i it, i don't think it's incidental that the portion of our narrative that the culture is most comfortable with is the least threatening um is the least intimidating it's the least challenging so it's it's press on Hold all that stuff dear, cherish that stuff, and press on as well, um, so so that it it's more than sentimentality. It's certainly fine to be sentimental. Just make it make sure it's more than sentimentality. Um, okay. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Timothy. With our last five minutes, I just wanted. No. Oh, I was kidding. I was kidding. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> oh no, we got half an hour. Dude. I was. I was. I was being silly. Um, so, no. Uh, So, uh, real quick, this is very elementary, I, I suspect, but the, the angel says you'll name him Jesus and references the prophets that said he's going to be named Emmanuel, mm-hmm. and Joseph names him Jesus. What's that to a layman or a non-Bible person? They say, see, the Bible contradicted itself in three verses or something because they didn't name him Emmanuel. You can be named something and called many things. Okay. His name is Jesus. He's going to be called Emmanuel. He's going to be called the Son of God. He's going to be called the Son of Man. What's the pro- I mean, I, I just would. No, that makes no, sense. No, I mean, so often when you look at the contradictions, just read it. Mm-hmm. And there are, co- there, I mean, I know the couple passages that are tricky. That wouldn't be one in my thinking. Yeah. His name is Jesus, and he's called people of titles. Just like Christ isn't his last name. It's a title. <laughs> you know. Um, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, so, uh, no. So, no, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Um, in fact, next week I'm planning on doing Isaiah 9. Unto us the child is born. He's given a number of names. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. We're going to hopefully look at some of those titles um, that he's called. Those aren't his names. Okay. Oh. So listening to um, Renewing Your Mind this week. Ooh, R.C. Sproul. Yes. So it has to do with um, the attributes of God. Yes. A lot of stuff rambling around my mind mm-hmm. in the mornings, which mm-hmm. is kind of dangerous sometimes. I think I finally gave up on trying to understand that God has no beginning. Just accept it. Um, but when, just like you said, when he came to earth, fully man, fully God, yeah. right? And so when he gets to the cross then, yeah. and God turns his back on him, yes. 
then how do we still be fully man, fully God? Yeah. There's a lot of mystery there, and we're getting things by implication. So what we know is like so like even if people say things like at the at the cross of father we sing the song the father turned his face away the text doesn't say that the text says jesus cry out my god my god why have you forsaken me um the text in i in, in isaiah 53 um has um it pleased the father to crush him so the father is angry with the son as the son takes our sin upon him and treats him in that anger he punishes him what that means about intra-Trinitarian fellowship, I don't know. There's a, like, people hypothesize things, and it's fair enough if you want to say perhaps, but there's mysteries here. How a God who is... How, the, the, the danger is, if you, if you argue that in the, in the, at the time the Son is bearing the wrath of God for our sin, at that time, the fellowship of the Trinity is broken, then in what sense in that time is God three and yet one? I don't know. The text doesn't demand that I say the fellowship's broken. Jesus means something real and significant, but he says, why have you forsaken me? There is a true sense we can speak of the Father forsaking the Son on the cross. Why? Because Jesus says so, right? He says it, though, quoting Psalm 22. Um, So I'd I'd probably go look at Psalm 22. When you're getting to things like this, I would just want to map out what the text says and just stay where the text says and be very, very, very hesitant to even hypothesize or guess beyond that. In a very real sense, the Father uh, uh, forsakes the Son on the cross. No doubt. Just like in in Philippians, it talks about he emptied himself. Um, We get into trouble and we start saying of what? Um, What's that hymn? Empty himself of all but love? I mean, it's poetic, I, and can it be, right? I don't like that line. You know, like, no, I don't. There's a mystery. I don't know. He, he emptied himself such that he became a slave or a servant. So even when I talk about, like, Jesus, I, I want to be careful. I, you might notice I used the term. I corrected myself earlier when I said he didn't come into the world omniscient. I said, no, he didn't come in functionally omniscient because I don't want to deny Jesus loses any attribute of God. He doesn't function in omniscience because he asks questions and he doesn't know who touched him and he says he doesn't know the day of his return so it's clear evident from the text jesus is not walking around having access to all knowledge or he's not utilizing that access what that means i don't know he's not functioning in omniscience um and i and i've come up with i've come up with a, a, a cheap illustration to try to highlight the point but but mostly what i'm trying to do when i do something like that is not be a heretic is dodge saying more than i mean to say so the analogy I use there is uh, if you have, um, I don't know, the church has bought a van. It's got some bells and whistles. It's, it's a nice van. Imagine our van just had the, the, all, the, all the Uber features. It had the Bose speakers, and it had the remote start, and it had the, it might have these things. I, have no, I know nothing about cars, so the elders really just, I got emails, and I nodded. And I said, sounds good. But, but guys like Al who know what they're talking about and doing, they, they really had their hand on this. Um, so imagine the, a van with just all the Uber bells and whistles. But also imagine it has a button that can turn all those special features off, right? So if I turned them off, so now I don't have power steering anymore, I don't have power windows, and I don't have remote start, and I don't have the sound systems turned off, could I say driving this van is no different now than driving the bare bones model? The, the consumer model. I think you could say that. You can imagine it. So, and yet it still remains being 
the, the souped-up version. The Bible's emphasis is that Jesus was made in every way like his brothers. So I resist, I want to resist. I'm thinking of Hebrews 2 when I say that. He was made in every respect like his brothers. So if there's a way Jesus can be like me and not cease being God, my instinct is to go there. I want him to be more like the Bible says he was, like me in every possible way that he could, except without sin. So I want to maintain Jesus' experience on earth is as close to me as he can, it can be, because the text says that. And yet I want to guard against, um, there's an old, there's an early church heresy, I think it's Nestorianism, Jesus stopped being God. Like he like turned, like, no, he didn't stop being God. So the analogy of the car, you can have the switch. Jesus doesn't utilize omniscience. He has it, but he volunteers. So, so you get into sort of complicated ways. Jesus voluntarily doesn't take advantage of his divine attributes that go beyond what you and I have. So in that sense, his experience is every bit like our experience. He's learning. He's, he's, he's um, having to work at things, and yet he doesn't stop being God. But all of that's mostly just to guard against a bunch of, heresies where Jesus stopped being God or but I also want to guard against the notion that Jesus is walking around like like Clark Kent you know Clark Kent looks like he's bumbling and Clark Kent looks like he's having a hard time but we all know underneath he's Superman and I don't want Jesus to look like it's theater when he says who touched me or when he's weary and goes to sleep in a boat I I I think it's important to say no he's tired Luke presents him having this epic long day he's exhausted um, and so I want to maintain those things. So that, that's mostly what I'm trying to balance out when I talk about those things. No, there's mysteries here. Let there be mysteries. Let it be. Let it be. It, it ought to be. The notion of God becoming man, if it's really simple and you can write three paragraphs explaining it, you're doing it wrong. Um, there's, there ought to be mystery here. Yes. So keep wondering. The danger is when we think we got it all figured out. Jordan. Jordan, right? Yes. So Klein this, filter. yes. So this may be even like further down this rabbit trail. <laughs> yeah. Um, does scripture say where Jesus went for three days? Like when God supposedly, yeah. you know, he endured the wrath that we deserved. How was that wrath shown and where he went? Oh, I don't think he went to hell. I, if, there's very, did, there's where various did he versions go? Of the, no, no. There's variations of the Apostles' Creed. Some have him just going to hell. Okay. Let me, let's let's go to Psalm 22. Uh, let's start there, and then let's go to uh, um, John. The end of John. This is a good rabbit trail. This is great. I I believe the short answer is this. I believe that before Jesus died, whatever abandonment had taken place was over. I believe that Jesus bore the wrath for our sin for about three or four hours of time, not three days. Um, so in Psalm 22, and, and pause and consider this. God, the Psalms, I was just talking with somebody the other day about the Psalms. I, I adore the Psalms. God has given his people songs to sing, prayers to pray, in just about every imaginable state of life, you know, which is a tremendous blessing. How do you rejoice a victory in a righteous way? There's a psalm for that. How do you grieve the loss of a child in a God-honoring way? There's a psalm for that. How do you confess your terrible sin 
in, in a righteous way. There's a psalm for that. How do you cry out with longing and confusion and vexation because it looks like God broke his word, but you know he didn't? There's a psalm for that. God's given his people all manner of songs to sing to him, including giving his son a song for the cross. How do you endure the sin of your people when you're a holy God who's never been tainted by evil? Well, there's a psalm for that. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were put to shame. So in the context of the psalm, the psalmist is already recognizing the apparent abandonment at most can be temporary. Because the first thing he's going to is, look, all the forefathers, they cried out to you in their distress and you delivered them. Psalm 22 will end with the confident expectation that God will deliver the one crying out in Psalm 22. I doubt very much Jesus just quoted the first verse. I, I tend to think he recited the whole thing and we just get the part that whoever's attention is when he shrieks out, Eli, Eli, Lamach, Sabachthani. Keep going. Verse six, but I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, for my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise me. So the psalmist goes from crying out, why have you forsaken me? To expressing his confidence that God will deliver him. To then expressing what he will do on the other side of that deliverance. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. I think the author of Hebrews picks up on that. He was heard. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Shall bow down, who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. It shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, what that he has done it. So even so, starting with Psalm 22, is not ultimately a song of, of abandonment. There's an experience of abandonment, and yet by the end of the psalm, the psalmist has so expressed his confidence that God will deliver him that he's already contemplating the great praise to God. It will be be brought to all peoples and all nations when they learn of that deliverance. And ultimately, Jesus is raised from the dead. He is not abandoned. He does not allow his body to see decay. So even in Psalm 22, the abandonment is, is temporary but for a moment. But what is Jesus, the last thing Jesus cries out on the cross? He's got the seven utterances. What's the last one? Father. So if we get in the my God, my God, a notion of separation, a notion of forsaking, that's gone before he gives up his spirit. When he gives up his spirit, he says, Father, familial term, into your hands I commend my spirit. So at that moment, I do not believe he, he is separated or whatever we want to call that abandonment of the Father. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I, I, Jesus is done paying for sin. When he says it's finished, it is finished. There's no more payment that needs to be made. There's no more atoning that needs to happen. Um, so I do believe that if you go to First Peter, let's go there real fast. Someone's going to bring it up. The basis, there's a couple variations on the, on the Athanasian Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Um, well, that heaven going down to hell, suffering in hell. Um, and they usually justify that from First Peter um, First Peter 3, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's go there. First Peter 3. 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So there's Jesus going to spirits in prison, proclaiming. A couple notes. Um, Greek likes to take nouns and turn them into verbs. So gospel um, literally becomes gospelized. Um, what we call evangelism, the Greek would just, the, the equivalent of what Greek does would be gospelized, discipleize the nations, be like the Great Commissions. Take disciple, verbify it, just make it a verb. Same thing with gospel, gospelize. J- the word for gospelize is not misused here. Jesus did not go and preach the gospel and good news, it's, uh, it's a verb to proclaim. Um, so Jesus went, um, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when the God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So Jesus went to a place of imprisonment to make a for- some proclamation to the spirits who were imprisoned from something they did in the days of Noah. That's what the text says, what's going on there. I'll tell you what I suggest um, what, well, let's, let's first observe what's not in there. Jesus is not being punished when he goes and does this. He's making a proclamation. He is proclaiming something. He's announcing something. He's functioning as a herald. He's not fun- functioning as a sufferer, as someone being punished, as a prisoner. He's going and making an announcement to prisoners. Um, why, set, why pick these um, people? 
these prisoners. Um, if you harmonize this with Jude and Second Peter, as well as Genesis 6, my best guess is that there are angels who left their proper place, Jude deals with this most specifically, who went and sinned um, in a similar fashion Sodom and Gomorrah did, and they were sent, let's go to Jude, let's do it, why not, because I'm going to, I got a rule, if you can't quote it, look it up, and I could not quote that, so let's go look at Jude, it's, no, it's weird, but harmonizing Jude with that, I think will make some sense here, yeah, starting in verse 5, what chapter, there's only one chapter in Jude, so just verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example for undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The short version, because we're short on time, is this. I believe, if you harmonize this, Genesis 6 talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men, the Nephilim. It looks as though a contingent of angels, fallen angels we call demons, um, came to earth and, and carried on with, some suggest they're trying to corrupt the human race. I don't know. They, though that, that contingent of angels, demons, was judged and sent to hell or place of punishment. We also get confirmation of this when Jesus encounters the demoniacs, and they say, what have we to do with you, son of man? Have you come to send us to the place of torment early, before the time? They're aware that's a possibility, and I think the reason they're aware that's a possibility is that that's happened to some of them already. So Jesus went to a place of punishment and enchainment and made a proclamation to the spirits from the days of Noah. That's my best harmonization. What are we making of this? My best guess would be Jesus announced his victory to them as well because it's not fitting, fitting for the risen Son of God to have any enemies who do not realize they've been utterly vanquished. It's a guess on my part. But it's possible, had he not gone there, those people, even though they're enchained, might think their side is winning, might think, yes, we got captured, but we're going to win. No, the, the risen Christ, my guess would be, announces his utter, total victory to all of his adversaries so that they do not suffer in chains in the hopes that their side will prevail. No, they were soundly defeated. He did crush the head of the serpent. That'd be my guess. Um, but what the text says is he went there, he made a proclamation, not that he went there and suffered. So I don't think there's any textual evidence to suggest that Jesus suffered in hell. On the cross, it's finished. That tells me that the sin-bearing is done. My father into your hands tells me he's reconciled. So what did he do for three days? I think he made a trip to a prison to make a proclamation the spirits kept in chains. And he celebrated in the kingdom, or he celebrated with the thief on the cross in paradise. You'll have to be with me today. What else? I don't know. Um, but no. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the, uh, that Peter reference is tricksy. Just because it's, again, every time I get to peep behind the curtain what angels are doing, I'm surprised. Uh, it's just not what I'd expect. Like God's having a conversation with Satan at the beginning of Job. Would, yeah. And there, because of that, I think there are some variations on that that don't have that. I think, I think if you look back at them. Um, so, yeah, no, where the Apostles' Creed says that, that's what they're trying to get at. I don't think so. Um, yeah. But no, the Apostles' Creed. And I'm not talking about Rocky. 
Okay, okay, come on. Any other questions on that? I don't know if we're going to have any time. Oh, Joshua, I'm not sure if we have time to go to Isaiah. Um, not really a question, but I think uh, Joyce Meyer would tend to disagree. Because <laughs> <laughs> she that said that Jesus better. went to hell to be punished. So, oh, dear. Joyce Meyer um, is a prosperity gospel preacher and teacher who I'm, I, I find it encouraging to find him on a different page. Than so, but yes. my one question I'd have is when Jesus was on the cross and he said, why have you forsaken me? Would that mean that God wasn't turning his back on Jesus, but he was turning his back on the sin that Jesus carried? That's po- it's, po- it's possible. What, we're, what we want to guard, there's something profound. For, and I'm quite comfortable saying I don't comprehend and understand the inter-Trinitarian, interpersonal relationships between the Father and the Son. Something happened such that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Something that, that warranted that cry. Um, and yet, if we press it too far, we end up with God being divided, the Trinity being out of fellowship. I, I don't know. It's enough to say something tortuous and awful and that bringing out anguish in Christ happened, and yet God still stayed God. And so then within those boundaries, we can, maybe it was this, maybe, perhaps, what you said, I got no problem with that, perhaps. As long as we recognize the boundaries, however we define that, we don't want to define it in such a way that God stops being God. But we also don't want to define it in such a way that it's theatrics and everything's hunky-dory. Clearly, we're dealing with deep grief and anguish. So we've got to keep that on the one hand, and we've got to keep God being God on the other hand. And within those boundaries, we can theorize. But this is the eternal Father and the eternal Son in word. Like, I, it, it's above my pay grade. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, no, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Oh, Wanda. I don't know if this is a question or a comment, but it's always blown my mind. How do angels turn from God? I don't get that. What? It was both, a question and a comment. Okay, yeah, good. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that was too easy. I'm sorry, Wally. You're a good sport. Thank you. I did Uh, did set myself up for that, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I don't know. That is honestly the, the most inscrutable piece is the fall, not the fall of man. The fall of man, um... Is, is I can wrap my head around because you've got a tempter in the garden. So how does a sinless man and woman get the thought to rebel against God? Well, in the garden, because Satan asked the question. How did Satan and his cadre of angels come up with the idea? I have no idea. None. Um, God has not told us much about the angels. He certainly has not told us much about their activity prior to the fall. We know from Job that they sang for joy. They, God, if you do a study on what do we know about angels, God created the universe to a soundtrack of the angels singing. They sang for joy as he created the world. They did that. Um, but how Satan beheld God and thought, I can beat them. I have no idea. None. And it's not to say there isn't. It's just God has not revealed that, so it, I don't know. This would be like Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine: the secret things belong to the Lord, the things revealed belong to us. No, it's a, it's an absolutely mind boggling question, and I have no idea. To, I, I'm with you. I'm I'm confounded by it as well. Um, so, 
Okay, five minutes. Anything else? I don't think five minutes will do to go to Isaiah 7, but we can try. Oh, no, no. Explain the dif- the the different uh, genealogies of mm. Jesus. Sure, yeah. sure. That that I can do. That I can do. Okay. So if you go and compare the two genealogies in uh, Matthew and Luke, you'll note I de- notice they're not the same. Um, I'll commend you to. I, I, and if you have friends of me on Facebook, I can publish it later. But I did an entire message when we did Luke's genealogy to, to deal with this. There. The short answer is you either have to conclude um, Luke or Matthew totally bungled it. I mean, but bungled it at a level that's ridiculous. No, I mean, they're, they're identical up to David. So, so Matthew and Luke's genealogies are identical up to David. And I believe it's, I believe it's um, Luke that which of David's kids does the line go through? Not Solomon. How on earth you miss Solomon? I mean, so if you're trying to, so when you've got your unbeliever saying there's a contradiction, back to your question here Luke isn't just stupid he's moronic if you're no if you're no if no if if if, take our kids in Sunday school fake a genealogy they're gonna get Solomon I mean they're gonna get Solomon they might miss Solomon's great-grandkid they might not know whether it's Rehoboam or Jeroboam but they're gonna get Solomon Luke does not have the line go through Solomon so he's either just completely inept, which when you compare that with how many of the details Luke gets, for instance, you go through Acts, the sequel to Luke. Luke, the Roman government um, would take over places and they'd let you keep your nice little title because you'd just be a puppet governor for Rome. So if you're a tetrarch, you're a tetrarch. If you're a, if you're a proconsul, you're a pro, that's cool, whatever. You know, like whatever your, your people's official and rank was, you can keep it as long as you pay your taxes and keep in line. Luke nails it. As, as, as Paul goes across the, the, the Hellenized world, Luke nails every one of them what the proper title should be. Nails it. So the lack of him, the, the hypothesis that Luke is able to get that much research, to get that much accuracy, but he misses Solomon? No. The, the, the answer, I think, is you've got the genealogy of Mary and the ge- genealogy of Joseph. Because, and both matter. Because in the, in the uh, Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, when God promises David a seed, you, you, you tried building me a house, David? No, 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 I'm going to build a house for you. From your own body. So the Messiah has to, gen, what we would call genetically, the Hebrew phrase from your own body would be what we mean by genetically. There has to be genetic continuity from David to the Messiah, which means Mary has to be in the Davidic line. Has to be, or, or that promise is broken. What we saw in Matthew is, is that Jesus gets his claim to the Davidic throne through Joseph, his adopted father. And so Jesus is the legal heir through Joseph. And there it matters that you're getting the right fork of the branches because not all of David's sons get to claim the right to the throne. You've got to follow the right, the right branch. Joseph, Jesus gets his legal claim to the Davidic throne. Mary, he gets his genetic descent from, Joseph, from, from David. And so um, Matthew and Luke, I believe, present Mary's and Joseph's genealogy. And I think there's a phrase in, um, if you go to Luke 2. Um, and I'll, I'll post this up later today or something because I'm trying to remember what I said. I think I remember it. But I can post something I actually prepped. <laughs> um, 
but the genealogy in Luke is in chapter um, three. There it is. Yeah, there it is. Okay. Okay. So the reading would be this. Um, so you've got the as was supposed in verse 23. Okay. Um, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. And then read it as that column being, the, in actuality, the son of Heli, which would be Mary's father. We know Joseph's father's not Heli. So the assumption would be, because you, there's, there's, you don't put women in genealogies. That's why Matthews are striking. Um, you, you go through male descent. And so if you understand Healy to be not Joseph's, but as was understood, but Mary's side, if, if you plug that as an assumption, not Joseph, but Healy, then we've got the entire other line of descent lined up. That's the short, the short version of what I think is going on with the two genealogies. But the alternative that Luke's bluffing, and he does such a terrible job at bluffing, is really hard, is really incredible. Even if even if we're taking claims of inerrancy off the table, just that he gets so many other details right, and he bungle, he doesn't even get Solomon. He's trying to f- bluff a messianic genealogy, and he can't figure out David's son Solomon. Seems rid- ridiculous. But we are at time, folks. I'll stick around for a few more minutes. Um, you guys have a blessed Christmas season tonight. We have our children's. Um, not a musical children's what do they call it in the bullet program um god bless god speed good day